Welcome back to the 67th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today, we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how can we make sure that the rural population doesn't feel animus towards the urban population, and how can we reunite both parts of America? A interesting article talking about UNC and how the university intends to break the echo chamber and actually start a new school, which may have a different tilt than the traditional university system. And an exclusive talking about how Google has harmed its viewers and has been deranking certain content. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, we're going to start with a question as per always, and I'm going to pose it to you. Can the divide in our nation be bridged? The battle between rural and urban, the battle between college-educated and non-college-educated, between Democrat and Republican. These are all lines that we draw on the sand to divide ourselves. But can we move past it? Is there anything that can unify us anymore? Is that shared American identity there? Or is it lost? And I would and will argue, yes, there is something that can bring us together. But I want to hear your opinions in the comments section down below. All right, let's jump into our first article. This one comes from the New York Times. Can anything be done to assuage the rural rage? End quote. So the election of Donald Trump was a loud message sent from rural communities across the nation screaming to the urban areas, we are still here. And the urban areas heard it loud and clear. Quote, rural resentment has become a central fact of American politics, in particular a pillar of support for the rise of right-wing extremism. And I do want to point out, because the author here says right-wing extremism, it will keep harboring on this point that this is radicalism, but he is also a progressive. So anything that moves the party a little bit further right is more radical and more extreme from his point of view. If you're in a person in the middle, the case still holds, and it does move a little bit further out, but it wouldn't be as radical or as extreme. And if you're on the right, then... A little bit of movement to the right is not extreme at all. So when he uses these terms, take it with a grain of salt, of course. And I'm not trying to hate on them instantly. I'm just trying to say that the words extremism, radicalism, they're meant to evoke certain emotions in you, and it's not necessary to actually display this author's point and to have a serious conversation about what he's saying. As the Republican, quote, as the Republican Party has moved even further into MAGA land, It has lost voters among the educated suburban voters, but it has been offset by a drastic rightward shift in rural areas, which in some places has gone so far that Democrats would remain face intimidation and are afraid to reveal their party affiliation. But is the shift permanent? Can anything be done to assuage rural rage? The answer will depend on two things whether it's possible to improve rural lives and restore rural communities, and whether the voters in these communities will give politicians credit for any improvements that do take place, end quote. 
So while the author does make a pretty good point, he, and he's not wrong that Democrats should boast their achievements, they're, I don't know if that will necessarily help more rural voters. They should definitely go out there and they should talk about certain issues, kitchen table issues, how they've maybe expanded some tax credits, food stamps, because rural communities, they rely on these programs very heavily. And of course, they should boast about this. But there's a deeper issue, which I think the author doesn't necessarily highlight here. And the solution really is politicians and urbanites need to stop talking down to this segment of the population. As someone who grew up in a urban, I say urban, a urban-ish area, but interacting with people who are from a very heavily urban area and came of age in an area that was a lot more rural. And yes, for anybody who's been listening for a while, yes, Alex, we know you, you grew up in one place, but you came of age in a different place. It gave you different perspectives. But I'm just trying to highlight here that there is a certain amount of disdain that these people in urban areas display towards certain segments of the populations, very often making fun of the way they speak or certain things that they say or saying they're not classy or civilized, and even not necessarily saying it outright, but being a little bit underhanded about it. And then also you have these rural areas that feel like they're being disrespected, you know, when you go into your community store out here in the valley, you can say hello to anybody. They'll have a smile on their face for the most part if they're a local. You can stand outside, talk to your friends for a few hours. But these people that come in from Northern Virginia, they're just all hustle, hustle, hustle. They come in, get what they want. They don't say thank you. Well, not always. Some of them do, of course, but not everybody says thank you. They're in their own world, and they don't necessarily show that same friendliness. So these rural people feel like they're being disrespected, or at least they're not being valued like they should. So this disconnect is a real one, and or at least the perceived disconnect is a real one. I think both sides, if they really took the time to understand what it's like and empathize with the other people's way of life, then it would be different. And that's what these politicians and these urbanites need to do. They need to stop talking down to this portion of the population and the people in the rural communities also need to stop being instantly defensive when these urbanites and politicians talk about trying to solve their issues. But I do want to point out that within the first paragraph, this author talks about losing college-educated voters. And why does that need to be mentioned? I understand that it is a factual statement. But why does it have to be brought up in this sense exactly, saying that Republicans are losing college-educated voters? It doesn't necessarily speak to the rest of what he's trying to get at here in the article. It's just thrown in there, maybe trying to imply. And at least, you know, this is me reading into it, of course. But it does feel as though the author is saying these people are not college-educated. They are a tier below they are not of the urban class who can make more money because they are college educated. That's what it feels like. And even if he's not saying that, if a person from a rural community was to read this, that's exactly how they would read it, even if that's not his intention. And yes, I understand that you cannot, you cannot always cater to the way that certain people read it, but you wonder why this perception that urbanites are less caring for the rural population when they keep talking about 
a college educated. You need a college degree to go to certain places in this world in order to work in certain locations. And then these rural people who can't necessarily afford to go to college, don't want to go to college because these colleges don't share their values. They feel like they're disconnected from the culture. They feel like they're being talked down to. So the author goes on to talk about or to debunk some common misconceptions about the rural areas, rural communities, including the fact that they receive a majority of federal and state aid programs, including Medicare, Social Security benefits. But he never addresses why. And maybe it has to do with the loss of jobs, loss of investment in these communities, loss of college graduation rates in more rural areas. And maybe rather than subsidizing a lifestyle that leads to higher rates of addiction and reliance on federal aid in these communities, we should encourage industries to move back into rural areas where land is a little bit cheaper. And it's worth taking a look at improving education in these areas. And I think it's actually very interesting because when I was growing up in the area where I went to school, it was a little bit on the edge. It was rural, but it was still a little bit urban. But when you come out to some of these rural areas, the acceptance rate to major colleges for the top percentage of a class is extremely, extremely high. And I think there was a certain, oh, they're coming from a less well-funded district, so we need to allow them in to this college. We need to give them the opportunity to move up in the world. And I always thought that was an interesting system. But what I would say, and as a person who has interacted with many people who have attended these high schools, middle schools, not necessarily lower schools because I wasn't here at that point of my life, but with someone talking to a lot of these people that have gone there, there are two different sections. There are, of course, the people who take school extremely seriously, who want to get out of the valley, who want to go to a prestigious school or at least a school in a different state, different area of Virginia. And then there's the other half who do not take education seriously whatsoever. And you'll find this in both urban and rural areas. But it's even more important in these rural areas that we really say, we try to influence these kids and tell them how important education is. Because even if they don't want to go to college, they can leave the valley if they have a good education, if they're smart enough, if they have the drive, and they can improve their lives without having to go to college. And what I do love about the valley here where I live and where I think what we think I think we could introduce in more areas across the country is trade schools. Schools that are specifically designated for certain trades where half of the day you go to normal high school, half of the day you go to these trade schools. And I think that is a great way to incentivize these kids, if they don't want to go to college, to at least be able to come out of high school with meaningful skills that allow them to progress and move forward. And I always loved that program. Even though I didn't participate in it myself, I knew people that did. And I always thought it was very intriguing. And it was a great way to help those kids who didn't want to go to college, but they understood the value that they had, and they understood that they can hone certain skills and move up in the world. And I absolutely loved that. So more incentives like this, rather than just giving them money through these federal programs and saying, 
oh, yeah, yeah, we'll just subsidize your life behavior. No, we need to encourage them to improve their own decision-making process so that they can get out of these situations themselves rather than being handed a check and going and spending it on substances or going out and buying things that they don't necessarily need or doing things that are not in their best interest. And also, it comes down to food in these areas. You don't have necessarily the best food in all of these locations, which definitely plays another big role. But that's a, a separate talking point, and we don't really don't need to go down that one. I do want to talk about how the author ends the article, though. He ends with this quote. Quote, still, anything that helps reverse rural America's decline would be a great thing in itself. And maybe, just maybe, reducing the Heartland's economic desperation will also help reverse its political radicalization, end quote. And yes, ex- ignore the radicalization line, but I do, I do agree with this point greatly. We need to, at some point, we need to recognize that when people feel economically desperate, and I say at some point, we recognize this for a long time, but have we actually been able to find a program, find a way to sustainably fix this issue? No. But when people feel desperate, they're more likely to resort to crime. They're more likely to resort to destructive behavior. And when people feel as though there is no escape, they will not ever strive. They will stay in the cave. And yes, I know I'm, it's ironic that I'm talking about college education. I bring up Pluto, uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. But if people feel desperate, they will not want to leave their situation. They will feel as though it's hopeless. And we need to provide that hope to a lot of these communities and a lot of these kids growing up in these communities. So that's the end of my speech from that one. Let's jump into our second article. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal. UNC takes on University Echo Chamber. Another reason that many rural Americans don't attend college, as I mentioned before, is that they believe these universities don't necessarily share their values. And while this is often true, UNC is trying to address this. Quote, UNC will establish the School of Civic Life and Leadership and plans to hire professors from across the ideological spectrum to teach in such academic departments as history, literature, philosophy, political science, and religion. These disciplines have become enforcers of ideological uniformity at most schools. Board Chair David Bellick and Vice Chair John Pryor tell us that the idea is to end political constraints on what can be taught in university classes, end quote, rather than replacing current professors or creating ta- uh, faculty turf battles, UNC plans to create a discrete program with its own dean and at least two new professors to build a syllabus free from ideological enforcers, tr- sorry, 20 new professors. Students will be able to choose new, the new classes to fulfill university core requirements. Those who aren't interested can stay in the existing courses, end quote. So, you know, this is both encouraging and a little bit scary, in my opinion. And I know that seems like a weird contrast, but I'll break down why I think of it that way. Having a place where an alternative point of view is welcome is amazing, and it really allows both professors and students a place to grow and to feel as though they can be heard and feel as though 
they can openly speak their mind and have these important discourses and bring our country back together at the end of the day. But, but, is this not just strengthening the silo by having these separate departments, schools, programs? I feel as though when we are saying, okay, you can have this normal curricula, which is progressive in nature, or this new curricula that we're making that may be a little bit more conservative in nature or focuses on more of the right-leaning values. I feel as though, at the end of the day, that is actually strengthening and actually creating a new echo chamber rather than breaking down the previous one, rather than saying, no, 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 we're going to increase the budget in these departments, allow for these 20 new professors to come into these existing departments and actually push back and make it a more equal experience across all classes and all departments, or at least the ones they're specifying here. They're saying, no, you can go into this course class, these course classes, or you can go into these course classes. You can go into this program, or you can go into this program. And at the end of the day, it's not actually forcing either side to come together and combat one another and kind of butt heads. And I know you might be saying, well, Alex, didn't you want, at the beginning, didn't you say you want us to not be divided? You wanted us to come together and be unified? How is having them butt heads a bad thing? And my thing is, if the people on either pro- in either program are not challenged, if they only hear a small or slight variations of what they believe, if they are only challenged on small, minute details rather than their entire argument, and being forced to re-examine everything and to really take a critical look at their point of view because they are being attacked, or at least they are being argued with in a very strong way, then that doesn't actually help anybody. It actually reinforces these biases, and it's only going to make the contrast worse because people coming out of these programs, they'll go into the real world and they'll say, oh, you are from UNC Normal, weren't you? Oh, well, I was in UNC Special or whatever the names of these programs will be. And then, at the end of the day, they're just going to butt heads, and since they're probably at the point in their life where they're not willing to really shake their core fundamental beliefs too much, because once you leave college, a lot of people, they feel as though they can stop learning, they kind of get dug in their ways, then it's actually going to create more friction in the real world. And if more universities adopt this, I see it happening. It makes sense from a money point of view, because if you have a separate program, you can actually charge a little bit more money. You can say, well, you're going into a special program here. We have to subsidize new teachers in order to get this up and running, a new dean. So I understand why they're doing it from a business point of view. And also it's more marketable that way, rather than saying, oh, yeah, we're going to take away from these progressive classes. We're not going to have the same progressive agenda all across the university, we're actually going to have a shared agenda. I understand why they're doing it from a business point of view, at least this way, but I think it doesn't actually help anything, or at least, I take that back, it will help make conservatives feel like they can go to college and have their point of view heard, but if the idea is to not have these echo chambers, then actually break the echo chambers rather than just building a new one for the other side. That's just my opinion on that part of it. Quote, most Americans have read about professors denied tenure for their political views, 
for visiting speakers shouted down. Students, too, often feel obligated to self-censor for social as well as academic reasons. And those who do speak know they can face harassment on social media as well as disciplinary action for words that offend dominant political sensibilities. In 2015, the University of Chicago committed itself to freedom of expression on campus. And dozens of universities, including Columbia, Smith, and Princeton, signed onto the Chicago Statement. Many have failed to live up to it, notably Princeton, with its mistreatment of former classical professor Joshua Kantz. In their new experiment, UNC will have students debate openly. Quote, I don't want to indoctrinate on the right any more than I want to indoctrinate on the left, says Mr. Pryor. And he's the vice chair of the board, if you don't remember from that last quote. And I think Mr. Pryor's view is the correct one. College should not be a place of indoctrination. It should be a place where you go to be intellectually challenged, not just in the classrooms, not just in these programs, but when you're going around on campus in discourse. That is why I believe having a separate school will only strengthen the, or a separate program, will only strengthen the echo chamber. Students will not have classes with those that totally disagree with them, but as I mentioned before, only slightly disagree with them. And they will not be forced, at the end of the day, to really defend their side. And to be really sure of your position, it has to be picked apart. It has to be chipped at. You must not only question yourself and your own beliefs, but put yourself in the position of defense in order to find the weaknesses that you cannot see on your own and see where your logic is failing and how you can improve it at the end of the day. But we'll see how this pans out. Maybe other colleges will follow suit, and maybe this is an attempt by UNC to get a larger share of the population of students that want to go to college or students that haven't necessarily wanted to go to college because they think there's liberal bias. As we know, the population of natural-born Americans is shrinking, and we know that over time, the demographics will have less kids of college age eligible to go to college. So I understand this move, and I think this is part of the larger university college industry trying to find ways to bring people in in a time where the statistics show that they're going to have less and less people to actually apply to their colleges. So we'll see if it pans out. And if I'm wrong, I may be wrong. At the end of the day, this may encourage great discussion between the two different programs, and they may actually break down the echo chambers, but I don't think that's the case, and we'll see how it pans out. All right, we're going to jump to our last article. This one comes from Newsbusters. Exclusive. Google harms viewers. Erases Project Veritas and Pfizer video. So for those of you that need a, a little bit of context, Project Veritas released a video recording a Pfizer official about their vaccine activities. And if you want to hear more about it, then you can look it up and look at that original video. But Newsbusters reports that you shouldn't do it on Google. Quote, MRC Free Speech America researchers analyzed Google Bing and DuckDuckGo search results for Pfizer Project Veritas. That's what the search term they used was. 
commonly searched keywords and found that Google buried Project Veritas' website and its social media pages sharing the video on page one of search results. But links to both the organization websites and its Twitter post appeared in Bing's and DuckDuckGo's top four search results on page one. O'Keefe called Google's bias an indication of the coziness between powerful organizations through the reciprocity of their shared interest. I know. Wow, O'Keefe using some big words there. None of Google's page one search results led users to Project Veritas' original video report on the video or its social media accounts. Instead, the search giant showed results from an absurd combination of news reports. Google's displays in its search results news reporting from The Hills morning show Rising, Indian news outlet like CNN News 18, in Opaland, India, and a link to the Soros-funded Poitner Institute summary of Georgian fact-check, end quote. So the author says that this is intentional on the part of Google. And while they cannot prove that necessarily, it is extremely, extremely suspicious in my opinion. As someone who uses both Google and DuckDuckGo, and actually Brave as well, I have all three. I can tell you that DuckDuckGo very often is the search engine that is not up to date on current news topics. It does not always have all the information that I want in the top search results. So I think it is very interesting that for once DuckDuckGo is on top of this story and Google is not. And if this is intentional on the part of Google... It is extremely concerning, especially because they are no longer being cutesy about it. In the past, they may have slightly deranked something or only had certain sources come up first, but if they are completely burying the links to these important reportings and these important videos, that is kind of malicious. And I'm not saying that they're doing it intentionally, because though we see that it is further down in their search results and they are the largest search engine, it doesn't necessarily speak to intentionality. It could be an algorithmic thing that was programmed in a long time ago that maybe Project Veritas was being a little bit shady about how they're gathering their information and Google didn't necessarily want them to be exposing certain aspects or they believe that their media practices were unethical, and they put in something saying Veritas information is going to be ranked a little bit lower. Is that good on their part? And yes, that was intentional in the past, but does that mean that they're suppressing this story in particular? No. So I think that the author is really, really clutching at straws here, but I do think it is dangerous at the end of the day, if it is intentional, that Google would do something of this nature. But what's even more concerning news, in my opinion, that has a little bit more evidence to back it up, it comes from the midterms and a similar study done by MRC, Free Speech America. Quote, Google also hid search results for Republican candidates just before the 2022 midterm elections. MRC, Free Speech America, researchers analyzed Google, Bing, and DuckDuckGo search results for 12 Senate races and found that Google 
buried 10 of 12 Senate Republican Party candidates' campaigns' websites while highlighting their opponents' campaign sites. This bias did not carry over the uh, 36 top House races, which did not hang in the balance. Google even went after its fiercest critics in Congress, burying all 10 Republican Party big tech critics that MRC Free Speech American researchers analyzed. The search giant again favored the Democratic candidate in the December Georgia Senate state runoff. Google search results favored Senator Ralph Warnock in a swing precinct where greater proportions of undecided voters likely reside, end quote. And this is much more concerning in my mind because the Project Veritas issue is one that politicos, people that are invested in the political process, that care deeply about politics, they're searching it up anyway. They are probably up to date on information like this. They're probably seeing their favorite commentators or news personalities actually discuss this already. Whereas this burying of certain candidates affects people who are, like the article says, undecided voters or people who aren't necessarily paying close attention to politics. They're not sitting down and researching every single candidate that they can vote for, what their policies are, how it will affect them, so on and so forth. So I think this sort of suppression, if intentional, is much more dangerous and something that needs to be highlighted more in this article because they kind of just throw it in here at the end. And I think it's a very important aspect to this story that honestly could have its own entire story if Newsbusters wanted to, and I would be willing to read that and promote it too because I think it's very important. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. We'll get away from all the negative stuff, and we're going to jump into something a little bit more cute from the animal rescue site. Young Monkey found the friendship she was looking for in Manmu, or sorry, Manu the dog. Rescue sites and sanctuaries have all different species living together, and sometimes they create friends that wouldn't normally meet in nature. Quote, the little monkey began making friends with the dogs, who were as playful as her. Omni found creatures who can return the same energy and play back without getting annoyed. Out of all the dogs she met, Omni became extremely attached to Manu, end quote. And, you know, just as emotionally attached, she also got quite literally attached. Quote, Avni was hanging out with the dogs in the back, and she must have grabbed onto him. Manu was so gentle. He was just like, okay. Avni just found it to be more comfortable riding on his back as if she were his mother. End quote. So if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos of Avni and Manu, or if you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Uh, leave a rating if you're listening on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podvine. Uh, where else do we have it up? Pocket Cast. So we're available on all those different locations now. I'm going to have links in the description in the future so you can reach all of those different areas. Uh, but if you can leave a rating somewhere, we're going to try to get on Apple Podcasts here soon. Uh, I'd appreciate it. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.